You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Ryan O. So this is Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. And I want to start real quick by letting everyone know, if you didn't know already, that we are now on Spotify. Ooh, and, it's super and, exciting. Yeah, and you can also find us on podsearch.com. Ooh, nice. We have what we could, we recorded a little promo thing for that, so that that'd be fun to find that there. So yeah, there's that. And then of course if you'd like to support us, rate us, leave us a review, share us by word of mouth. Or patreon.com. It has been reinvigorated. I want to congratulate Mike for supporting. Thank you so much. Uh, we are sharing raw video episodes, some like teaser audio content um, or like behind the scenes sort of audio content. And yeah, that's going to keep happening. We've hit it for two weeks in a row. Let's uh, we'll keep reporting where we're at. So thank you so much for your support. We'll also be we'll we'll be delivering a full announcement of what exactly all the tiers and levels will be and, and how, what that'll look like uh, really soon. So be yeah. be on the lookout for that. And, uh, and we'll start really using this tool to our advantage, and, and also everybody else will have some benefits from that as well. Yeah. All so, right, cool. On the docket for today, drum roll, please. <laughs> so, We already messed first, up the intro. Uh, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> so all right. The, the, quest, the question to everybody is, go for it, Abraham. Uh, well, I, I would ask, I mean, everyone can think about the answer who's listening right now but i'll start with asking you um and i'll I'll just answer along with you have you consumed alcohol in your life ryan most definitely okay <laughs> how about you how abraham ba- uh yes i have how about in the last year most definitely i just i had one last night i had a beer last night okay well then you're in a shortcut the rest of these answers uh no for me in the last month yes for you no for me and in the last 24 hours yes for you no for me <laughs> sorry i've been really into these sour beers i found them at a conference last year and so i've been oh, just uh dabbling like trying to sample different ones find what i like but typically i don't something. i don't consume a lot yeah that actually sounds pretty good sour beer sounds like something that i used to I hate them understand and then i realized that there is a fine art to making them correctly and when i found those right places whoo they are delicious <laughs> awesome. they're kind of like a dessert for me oh all right well so according to a survey in 2015 by the national study on drug use and health more than 86 percent of americans have report that they have consumed alcohol in their lifetime more than 70% had consumed alcohol at some point in the previous year, and then 50% in the last month. Which makes you wonder if those other 14% are just lying, right? <laughs> I would suspect that, I mean, there are people like myself who are sober by choice, but I would suspect that a relatively significant chunk of that make up people who are, I mean, they might be sober from like a, a program, they might be sober for religious reasons, they might be sober for the same reasons that I am. Yeah, and that was a bad joke. Um, (laughs) I just have a lot of respect for those people at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting. The vast majority of people, at least in this country, have consumed alcohol on a regular basis, on a a relatively regular basis, at least periodically, you know? so. And that's things that we've been doing for, like, what, eight to 10,000 years easily? 
Yeah, that it's been it's been observed that alcohol has been found in various like anthropological surveys and historical surveys of of artifacts and whatnot going back at least eight to ten thousand years. And I even saw one source that suggested that hu- that human ancestors, so people predating humans, Neanderthals maybe or something. Um, have been consuming something like alcohol for 10 million years. That's a, that's a long time. Humans have definitely not been around for 10 million years. <laughs> but. Uh, and then digging into it even deeper, it looks like there's even some evidence that animals sometimes ingest uh, alcohol. Although it sounded like a lot of it was accidental. There's not like... A- <laughs> You know, they're going to the animal pub or bar or local watering hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, whether it's, I saw reports of uh, like when they, what was it? What am I saying? Like when you see a butterfly fly into your can of beer or like your juice or whatever, things yeah. like that. Um, which I don't know, uh, makes sense. There was some reports that there was some scientific studies looking at this sort of stuff, but nothing's like humans on going out there and just getting totally obliterated. Well, so the reason that I included this is that, um, and I I didn't really look up the animal because I didn't feel like it was super relevant to this episode, but there is some kind of, I want to say it's a type of rodent, I'm not totally sure, but it eats a lot of like rotting fruit as part of its diet. And so it gets this this fermentation that comes off of the fruit and consumes it in incredibly high volumes, but doesn't actually appear to behave as though it's intoxicated when it does that. Um, so if it was a person consuming that much alcohol proportional to its size, then that person would be extremely <laughs> intoxicated and possibly even be lethal at those doses. But I don't remember what it was. I just thought it was interesting that there are some animals that consume those fermented products. That's part of their diet. And they seem to be, they seem to do okay with it because they break it down in a different way than we do. Now, This is our first episode delving into this topic of mind-altering substances, and it's important to note at the beginning that this is not meant to be a PSA or to try and convince people to do anything. I obviously have already said that I don't consume alcohol, but I don't disparage anyone who does, like you do you. (laughs) And I just thought it would be interesting and fun to explore what's going on, especially considering how common and prevalent this is. Like This is a behavior that a lot of people engage in. Another thing that this episode is not is it is not an episode about addiction or alcoholism specifically. We might kind of touch on those things, but those definitely deserve their own treatment. Really, the point of this episode, this discussion today, is to ask and answer the question, what is the process of how alcohol affects us? That is, how does it work? And also, why do we do it? Why do we? <laughs> why, why do we self-select this thing that has that can have rel- pretty deleterious effects if we do it in excess? So let's dive into the background. Yeah. All right. So the background. There's many types of alcohol, most of which are very dangerous for humans to consume. So it's uh, alcohol is technically any chemical compound of the hydroxyl function group bound to a carbon ion. Super nerdy, right? The yep. OL in a chemical name usually indicates that it is a type of alcohol. So methanol, um, which, by the way, do not consume uh, methanol. <laughs> it will just be a poison and not fun whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and then ethyl alcohol is a kind that is relatively 
safe and consumable by humans for the effect of getting us uh, drunk, intoxicated, any of those altering sort of effects. Yeah, so anytime one refers to alcohol and they're referring to something like um, like scotch or wine or beer or anything like that, they're referring to ethyl alcohol specifically. It is It is a kind of poison, but it won't kill you the way that another alcohol like methanol which is also an alcohol will just poison and kill you and it's not it's not a like have fun feeling drunk it's a like ache really badly and then die from that <laughs> so. yes and so if you're if you're new to this world we don't really consume pure alcohol it's diluted to a certain percentage too high a percentage of blood alcohol leads to alcohol toxicity and essentially can just get you a really quick road to death when we get into withdrawal symptoms, that's some of my favorite. They're just so fascinating uh, that this thing is even legal <laughs> at the end of the yeah. day. So beer typically is ranging in a percentage of like 4 to 6%. If you get into craft beers, that could jump up between uh, 6 and I'd say 12 or 15%. Wine's usually hanging in 11 to 15% alcohol or ratios. And then hard alcohol, it's distilled spirits, are usually over 40%, um, but you can have upwards of 95%. Right. And I mean, you ever, you ever had moonshine? No. Okay. Moonshine's on that upper end. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been given to understand that that isn't like Bacardi one. That's pretty high. I don't know. Technically Bacardi. I know like good homegrown moonshine. I've smelt literally through packaging, like glass packaging, (laughs) which is absurd. Like the room smells like it because of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so you could potentially drink pure ethanol. It wouldn't taste very good um, at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and also the, the problem with it is that it can raise the blood alcohol content so fast. Like that's the reason that we don't tend to do it is because you'd have like a shot and your blood alcohol content would be crazy high. I, I, I honestly don't know how much you would need to have, but a very small amount would get you to the point of being like poisoned and on the brink of death. Yeah. Well, and it it, deter- it depends on how much you're consuming, how your body is metabolizing that, because we're all a little bit yes, different. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a very good point. Well, I, we'll talk about more about how the the body sort of processes alcohol, but most of the time, we're where people enjoy drinking because it's a social thing, and they enjoy drinking because of the taste a lot of the time, and they enjoy drinking because it's part of a social experience. And so, if you're to try and drink something like pure ethanol. <laughs> Um, you're not. You're getting none of those things. You're not getting taste. You're not getting fun. You're not getting social anything. It's just you might be really, getting really, fun and social <laughs> for like fifteen. Well, okay. It takes how long? <laughs> it, it takes a certain amount of time to get through your body, but like less than an hour you have before oh, yeah, you yeah, are yeah, yeah. at toxicity levels in the hospital. Or so let's or slide worse, into so. let's slide into the biological uh, steps then. So yeah, in most good, good all time. circumstances, you're consuming this orally. Yes, you, you can consume it rectally. Uh, don't. I have seen that, but don't, do though. not very, do it. Very dangerous. Yes. I've seen it done. Not seen it. Oh, hold on. This sounds really bad. <laughs> Just w- I have not seen it with my or... own eyes. I have not watched a video. <laughs> I have heard that this is a thing that is circulated circulated around. Um, I just want to make that a little clear, and I've never attempted it that way myself. Okay. I'm glad. <laughs> So talk about what happens when we consume it, Abraham. 
Yeah, so as it, it goes in your mouth, it's going to go down your throat. Uh, about 20% of it is going to be digested in your stomach. And then the most, the rest of it is mostly going to get ingested in your small intestine, about 80% of it there. Um, there will be little tiny amounts that don't make it through your small intestine, but almost everything is going to be digested between your stomach and your small intestine. And then from there, it actually skips most of the rest of the regular digestive process and goes straight into the bloodstream, which makes it a little bit interesting. So while the alcohol is in the stomach, the stomach becomes more acidic to deal with this alcohol. Prolonged and intense exposure can eventually lead to sores forming in the stomach and intestines. Uh, Food can somewhat help mitigate this effect of alcohol. Um, I used to, when I was in my party days, I always had a giant burrito before I went out and consumed because it would slow down the effects there and allow me to consume more. Again, I do not advocate for this, but I've I've lived that. (laughs) It's also not like if you eat food, you will definitely not get alcohol toxicity or you will definitely uh, be safe from the over the the long term effects of prolonged use, it's just something that can help cushion it a little bit. Right? Yeah, and if anything, That's you're awesome. just like paying more to get that effect. <laughs> it's just <laughs> silly in so many ways. Um, so once it's in the bloodstream, it travels to about every organ in the body. They all get blood after all, right? Yeah, and it can cross the blood brain barrier. So let's talk about this blood brain barrier. Yeah, I mean it. It's an interesting part of the brain, um, but just I think it's briefly worth mentioning here. This is the sort of spongy thing that exists right at the base of our brain that blood passes through because we, our, our blood, our brain needs blood, but it otherwise filters out most other substances, anything that could potentially be harmful or dangerous for us. However, alcohol can make it through this blood-brain barrier, and the alcohol itself goes straight into our brain. All right. So blood-brain barrier, check. The next one is how is this process, which actually happens through the liver. Now, the liver is this organ, about three pounds, designed essentially to be able to process toxins, make sure that we are not poisoning ourselves. So it plays a very interesting role in this. And I think the thing that's super interesting here with alcohol is that it's produced differently than most other drugs. It's produced at a uh, certain rate. It's metabolizing at about 10 milliliters per hour. So each person is metabolizing at about that rate, which is not like most other uh, metabolization processes when it comes to drugs. So the idea here is that as you consume more and more and more, the reason that you're getting more and more of that drunk effect is because your body can only metabolize so much per hour. Now there's this other substance in there called alcohol dehydrogenase, which temporarily converts the alcohol into something even more toxic called acetylhyde, which is then converted into acetate, which is sort of type of salt that our body can use. So what do we want to, is there anything we need to digest there real quick? I mean, I think it's just important to understand that the, the liver is critical in this process and it is the largest internal organ that we have. And it's, primary job is to help filter out toxic substances. So when you're drinking, when you're intentionally consuming poison, then your liver is on like, it's on, it's on high alert and working really hard to deal with that. Otherwise it's sort of generally just filtering out regular toxins you encounter throughout your day. And so it, it can easily become overwhelmed as its primary job is not to like 
process massive quantities of ethanol. Yeah. And most drugs, I'll take caffeine, for example, have a half-life. So the idea is that, say, if you consume 100 milligrams, let's do 120 milligrams of caffeine. That's usually what's in about a good big cup of coffee. So the way that this works is you have about half of that amount of that original dose that is out of your system after that half-life. So with our caffeine example, 120 milligrams after four hours would be down to 60 milligrams. And this is how I think almost every single drug that we ever consume works. There's a half-life system and that amount of time is different based on each drug. And that is how we calculate when you should take your next dosage. But also it gets in some interesting things when you're talking about your chronic versus your acute dosages. So this is why on the back of labels, it says you can only take so many in a 24 hour or one week period, etc. But the point here is that most drugs are processed through the body um, and there's this half-life process. But when it comes to alcohol, it is not in that half-life process. It is this per milliliter, 10 milliliters per hour sort of process. So this is why it can be extremely dangerous very quickly in different ways. So alcohol will do several things. One of the things it will do is slightly relax your heart's pumping and make blood less likely to clot. And therefore, while you're consuming alcohol, it will temporarily, slightly reduce the chance of a heart attack. Again, just while it's in your system and only by a little. You can 100% still have a heart attack while consuming alcohol, and it will not have this effect. It's not like if you have a beer every day, you're less likely to have a heart attack yeah, overall. No. <laughs> that hasn't, that, not only has that not been shown, but actually the opposite of that is, tends to be the case, um, which is that, in the, and I'll, I'll talk about this later, but in the long term, it tends to increase blood pressure. But um, the alcohol in the blood flows through the pulmonary vein and into the lungs as well as part of this process. And so that's why we will exhale small amounts of alcohol when we breathe. It's not because the alcohol is getting into our lungs as we consume it, like as we drink it. It's not like going through our esophagus and into our lungs as it goes down, but because it's in the blood and all of the organs in our body, including our lungs, use the blood, then when the alcohol flows into the lungs, then uh, small amounts of alcohol are excreted, and that's how we can those breathalyzers work is by measuring the alcohol that comes out from there. All right, let's talk about the muscles now. Muscle absorbs alcohol more quickly than fat. So people who are particularly muscular tend to have a higher tolerance for alcohol. This also means that the brain is better protected from the effects of alcohol. So if food slows down the absorption, then essentially what I'm what I'm interpreting from this is that the implication is a bodybuilder who's on a food binge is going to have a hard time getting drunk. Oh, yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Um, the, the thing is that the effects are slower and less pronounced. So it's also better for your stomach to eat with alcohol. We already talked about this a little bit. One source suggested that fat doesn't absorb at all, which it is just slows it. Yeah. Their suggestion yeah. was that it just slows it down. And that's why uh, people who are less muscular tend to feel drunk longer, essentially. Okay. And I think this is what I remember from my behavioral pharmacology class, but I could be correct. Incorrect. All right. Now, depending on several factors, it takes about 30 minutes to start being affected by alcohol once it's been consumed, and it will stay in the body for about two hours. But of course, we've already mentioned this really varies quite a bit depending on on weight and muscle mass, as we just mentioned, and food and uh, how your metabolism works in your body. A whole bunch of factors are, are going to affect that those figures, but you have a rough average of 30 minutes to start having an effect and about two hours until 
if you just stop drinking after that one, about two hours, so that effect will will cease occurring. Now, those who are considered the sort of lightweight, so people who easily feel intoxicated, they will feel the effects of consuming alcohol sooner and they tend to last longer. That actually just means that they're processing the alcohol more efficiently in a way. So I think the important thing here is though is that like these things can vary drastically on the individual level. So just remember that. <laughs> yep. So with enough alcohol, the blood cells expand and flow from the center of the body to the skin, often giving it this like pinkish look, this flush. We'll have to at some point get into the quote Asian flush as well. And then that feeling that you are warm, although you're actually not, it's doing the opposite effect, can start to occur. Right. And so people who are drinking because that warm blood is coming out to their skin and makes their skin feel warm and they might then be more likely to expose themselves to dangerous levels of cold because their skin feels so warm. And then although they're not actually their, their body temperature is not like increased, they're not warm. Yeah. Um, then uh, they put putting themselves in a situation where the cold can do a lot of damage because they're not protected. Yeah, and this is seen a lot when you're in countries or areas of the world that have a lot of uh, cold weather. People will be – one thing that I see it in all the time is like the skiing, snowboarding culture. People are like, mm-hmm. oh, have a little bit of whiskey. Have a little bit of this to warm you up. It helps out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. You're not, you're not warm. All. You f- you will get the experience of feeling warmer um, and you're actually speeding up the process of freezing to death as well. Yes. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and if anything, you're just also increasing the chances that you're going to, or you're speeding up the- with continued uh, consumption of alcohol beyond that point of the fact that the warm blood has come out, you'll actually begin to sweat out the alcohol. And so your skin will start to smell like alcohol. If you've, if you've had enough of it. Been there. <laughs> many times. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, all right. So, Let's talk about the next myth, which is breaking the seal. So this is the idea that uh, you've consumed a lot of alcohol and you have to then urinate. um, And if you break that initial seal, so the idea is that the first time you you finally decide, okay, I'm going to cave in, I'm going to go to the bathroom, I'm going to pee, that you're going to then have uh, this increased rate of which you have to urinate, right? Like the rate the frequency with which you have to urinate will increase as a result of you breaking that seal. So the idea is that you hold it as long as you possibly can, which is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the the hypothesis here is like Pringles. It's like once you pop, you can't stop. Oh. It's, it's looking for, for Pringles. And it's the... But yeah, this, this is largely a myth. What happens is uh, there's a lot of things going on. First of all, if you hold it in for a very long time, you've actually needed to urinate for a very long time. You would have been urinating on that schedule. You were just holding it in. Alcohol irritates the bladder once it's there, and it also reduces the brain's ability to produce a uh, hormone called vasopressin, which is an anti-diuretic. Uh, uh, this is something that our brain secretes, as you might imagine, while we are sleeping so that we do not wet ourselves in the bed. Um, and, and so that's what that hormone does, and this is produced by alcohol, meaning that it's harder for us to regulate how much we need to go. So the more you can, more alcohol you consume, the more, um, I guess, suppressed that hormone is, the uh, more difficult it will be to regulate, if you will. And so people do, they do urinate a lot more while they're drinking and their their urine can also start to smell a little bit of alcohol. However, you would be urinating regardless um, of that process. Holding it is just like 
trying to hold off on on the same rate that you'd be going if you just went. So yeah, and it's and it's really not good for you to hold it in. So really, just just go. Like you're, and, it, this is a myth. Yeah, and surprise this is like episode ninety five or something around there, and we yet again run into another white spell myth that we know that the science has totally dispelled. <laughs> yep. So. Let's move into prolonged use. So you start to consume this on some sort of chronic schedule. The sort of things that will happen, cell death in the liver leaves it to this hardening, uh, gives us like this actual hardening effect. Like you can see this, you can touch it, you can feel it Um, when you're looking. Yeah, not not in your own body. You're not going to. Yeah, no, when you like pull it out (laughs) is what I was getting out there. When you like look at these sort of things. Um, and dissect them afterwards. Um, and what's going on is cirrhosis of the liver. It's struggling to do its job. It's getting, I don't know the exact process with cirrhosis. Do you? Well, it's just that. It's just that the cells are dying. That means it's starting to become this hardened thing. And because their cells aren't able to do their job anymore, it gets this to be this sort of brick in your body. And that's what cirrhosis is. It's, and it's you're, just that. You're essentially starting to increase the toxicity uh, right within your body, all these poisons can start to actually have their effect on your body. Right now, I don't. This just occurred to me. This is totally side tangent, and not really related to this. But there are some animals that, because this is the liver's job, and in, in most creatures, uh, there are some animals where people eat their liver, and they will actually die of poisoning um, because they're just consuming straight up however much toxic waste was in that animal's liver at the time that they died. And that's crazy. It, yeah, and so I mean that's as I understand it, there are many animals to eat their livers is perfectly safe and it's no big deal. But the one I, I'm gonna say this, I don't know that I'm actually correct because I didn't look this up. It just occurred to me, but I believe that it's bears that their liver in particular is. Um, is I'll really... try to do a quick search while we're talking. Keep okay. going. Not. <laughs> so I'm, I'm saying don't eat bear liver, <laughs> just to make sure we're clear on that. <laughs> probably don't eat bear at all but you know i guess i can't really tell people what to do um i just don't see i don't see where there'd be a major advantage there anyway let's let's move on to uh, another effect of prolonged use is that brain cells die uh with that continued exposure um, we'll talk about how alcohol works in the brain but if there is that sort of chronic use the really consistent even if it's I mean, again, it depends on a lot of factors, but if it's, let's just say regular use, the, the dying brain cells can result in overall smaller brain mass. In addition to that, this prolonged use, as we mentioned, with respect to the, the stomach and small intestines can lead to ulcers and sores that make it so you're just in sort of chronic pain and may have a small amount of internal bleeding. As I mentioned before, although it will temporarily re- uh, reduce the likelihood that your blood will clot, which makes it slightly less likely that you're going to have a heart attack at the time that you're drinking. Again, slightly less, and you can still have a heart attack during this. Um, over time, it actually will increase average blood pressure, and so that, that can obviously be dangerous. Um, another one is that for males, uh, alcohol can have it, uh, lead to decreased overall sperm count, making you less fertile. Um, and... If that's something that you are thinking, well, I'll just drink a lot so that I don't have any accidental babies, I am aware that they that some people have been working on a male birth control pill, and I think that it's nearing availability, like commercial commercial availability. So there are interesting, and there's also like you know condoms and stuff. So <laughs> consider, consider me that. as a consider me as a possible experimenter of that. 
sure. in the future if Great. we ever need to report good, on the effects good of that. Good to know. <laughs> Thanks. I just, I would love to be patient. I don't know, not zero, but test that out. That's fair. That's being a part of like history, man. I know that the, I know they've at least have been in human trials. I don't know how oh, far along yeah, yeah. it is though. So it's yeah. No, I'm gonna uh, wait until that's approved. I'm gonna wait yeah. until that goes through all those <laughs> stages. Um, okay, quick, quickly, just to like rewind for a second, I found a little bit of info on the bear, and it's the polar bear, I believe, is what you were running into, and it's because they have an obscene amount of vitamin A. It looks okay. like that is in their liver so an average human just since we're here yeah. average human can tolerate about 10,000 units of vitamin a it sounds like in a day and it becomes a little bit troubling when you get this 25 to 30,000 unit range and a reasonable amount that i guess a human would eat of a poor bear can have up to 9 million units of vitamin whoa a. <laughs> yeah it's a little overdoing um, it so i believe that's not solely just with uh with polar bears, it looked like there were some other animals too, potentially that live in the sea. But just to kind of all right do us a little justice on that. Yeah, interesting. Uh, another result of prolonged use of alcohol is anemia. But this really has to do if, like, if someone who drinks to the exclusion of eating a normal diet, and so they have poor nutrition. Um, someone who continues to have a regular normal diet is not really likely to have anemia unless for some other reason, um, just from consuming alcohol. But really, if what can happen with people who um, regularly consume to excess is that they will not necessarily eat food at in a, in a regular rate, and so they, um, they'll have poor nutrition and develop anemia. I think that has to do with vitamin B um, when it comes to anemia. Do you know for sure? I don't. Okay. I'm pretty, I'm almost positive that it's like a lack of vitamin B that's like part of that uh, process of triggering the anemia. Um, but I think there's also something with vitamin t- vitamin K as well that produces some sort of um, like they call it leaky gut syndrome. Do you know anything about that? No, but that sounds like okay. something I've heard associated with some pseudoscience. But it's a whole, but hold on. It's a whole different... Uh, like syndrome that pops up with specifically in alcoholics that we probably want to cover at some point here. Why don't you keep going and I'll see if I can find anything on it because I know it's something. Okay. Well, like I said, the, the, the point of this episode is not to necessarily talk about alcoholism, just bringing up the, no, but it's, of... it's one of those side effects that you're talking about are like long-term effects. Okay. That's why. All right. And then finally continued prolonged use can, potentially lead to a general increase in injuries, um, usually bruising and broken bones. This has to do with lack of being able to control your movements well and a tendency to therefore maneuver the environment in a less graceful way, Uh, meaning specifically that you're more likely to fall down and run into stuff, and that just kind of happens as a byproduct of being intoxicated. So it's not like someone who has a glass of wine every day is likely to necessarily experience this, but someone who drinks to the point of being intoxicated every day very well might, if that makes sense. Okay. Next, let's talk about how this works in the brain. And from there, we'll talk about how we get the experience of being drunk, but just to like want to run down the steps of what's going on in the brain. Okay. So 
Well, let's begin with anyone who has consumed alcohol, which, as it turns out, is most people, at least in the United States, and I would guess in the world, we're talking more than 50%. Anyone who's consumed alcohol will have some level of familiarity with the experience of feeling intoxicated at least a little bit. But in short, people generally will become more relaxed, less inhibited, which is to say they're more likely to just do kind of whatever they want in the moment, sort of in, in act on their impulses, if you will. And they're also more likely, at least at first, to become um, more excitable. And so these are called the stimulatory effects of alcohol. So what will quickly start to happen with consuming alcohol is that thinking will become sort of the metaphor that's often used as fuzzy. So it's just a little harder and things don't necessarily make as much sense. Um, muscle coordination begins to decrease, which slows reaction times. This makes it difficult to perform complex and eventually even basic motor functions, such as walking. It can become difficult to speak coherently as the muscle coordination to the tongue begins to decrease and weaken. Uh, the alcohol will impair parts of the brain dealing with processing memories and make vision appear blurry so that people are, are more likely to forget, I guess, if you will, things that happen while intoxicated and will also have a hard time visually navigating their environment in addition to the fact that they're losing control of their muscles and also... Um, eventually, with enough exposure and enough consumption, the excitability effect, that stimulatory effect, decreases and alcohol will actually produce this really sedative effect, producing sort of drowsiness. So that's just the kind of what it feels like. So, yeah, there's a couple of simple things that we do know is occurring. There's a decrease for any of all the nerds out there. There's a decrease in the ion channel functioning for some of your neurotransmitters. And it increases your GABA activity and your dopamine activity um, for anybody really curious about that. Yeah. So and actually, let me, let me break down specifically how, how even that works and, and why that would be relevant, which is that neurons in our brain and our brain is basically made up of neurons. They work by communicating to, with one another through this electrochemical process with substances called neurotransmitters, as you just mentioned. And these occur naturally in the brain. Or we just produce them, and that helps our brain communicate, or the neurons in our brain communicate with one another so that we can go about interacting with the world around us, and our entire body can, com can communicate with our entire body so that things like our, our lungs work and our stomach digests and our heart beats and our muscles move in such a way that we can... Um, bring food to our mouth to, and chew it to extract the calories from it, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, these, these neurotransmitters occur in the brain, but we can also consume or ingest neurotransmitters that can, or, or things that are like neurotransmitters that can in some way affect, imitate, replace, or block those neurotransmitters. Usually when we do this, this has a pretty immediate and profound effect. Generally speaking, a neurotransmitter is either going to excite a neuron, essentially turning it on, or inhibit a neuron, which prevents it from turning on. Okay, And this is a natural balance. We want this natural balance because if all of the neurons were all communicating at once, we'd be having a seizure and unable to process any information. It needs to be selectively responding only to specific things. Okay. This selective firing allows us to sort of have that meaningful interaction with the world such that we're only responding to certain things and not as if all things were going on at once, sort of, sort of like a neurological white noise in a way. 
Now, the alcohol can either block inhibitory neurons resulting in more neurons firing or block excitatory neurons resulting in fewer neurons firing or do both, either way disrupting that balance. And so, uh, as Ryan pointed out, we do know some about what's going on at, with the level of the neurotransmitters like with GABA and dopamine. However, we actually still don't fully understand how alcohol does what it does to produce the effects that it produces. Um, I found a paper from 1997 that suggested that there was more of the GABA neurotransmitter, uh, which you mentioned, and this was confirmed in, in later research. I did, interestingly, find a 2010 article suggesting that there was also an in increase in norepinephrine, which is also referred to as the stress hormone. And another thing that's interesting about alcohol is that it affects over 100 unique receptors in the brain. That's insane. In that second article, the... The participants who had consumed alcohol and were, colloquially speaking, drunk, uh, they were evaluated using a PET scan. This is we did an episode on this. PET refers to positron emission tomography. Very briefly, what happens in this PET scan is that there are these little chemicals put in your body called tracers, and this machine scans for those tracers are being metabolized. So basically, where they go, and they show where the most uh, activities taking place, which they can therefore show where activity decreases um, uh, as well, because they're seeing where they move as, as in response to consuming alcohol. And so, what this study showed was that the most decreased activity took place in the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain typically associated with planning, decision making, rational thought, inhibiting aggressive behavior, personality, morality, emotions, and generally higher thinking. It also reduced activity in the temporal lobe, which is where we have auditory processing, memory processing, and language, and then also in the cerebellum, which is basic motor control or muscular control. So all that makes sense. The article also described a study that isolated a specific subunit of a GABA receptor called delta, and this responded specifically to alcohol. And interestingly, what they found also, or what they already kind of knew, but um, what they were looking for and what they found is that this subunit GABA receptor, delta, is more highly concentrated in the prefrontal cortex, the temporal lobe, and the cerebellum. So that delta GABA, uh, GABA subunit receptor seems to be a critical variable in understanding how alcohol works in the brain and where and why it affects the areas it affects because that receptor tends to be present in those areas. All right. Can I pause for two quick updates yes. on some live research that's going on on this end. So <laughs> when I was, <laughs> when we were talking about the chronic use and what it can lead to alcoholism or chronic, uh, like alcohol misuse can cause what they call Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. Have you heard of this? Yeah. That was the one I was thinking of. Um, it's what happens from not having a good balanced uh, nutritional diet and it's a lack of vitamin B1. So they see it in a lot of um, chronic uses of alcohol. And what it does is it starts to create this um, increased chance of confusion, changes to the eyes, vision, exaggerated storytelling, and some other things. It'd be <laughs> fun to maybe tackle that in a totally different, uh, <laughs> totally different episode. Now, the other thing that I thought was super interesting is this thing called AWOL, alcohol without liquid. And I do not know the current status of this, but there was a process developed to be able to inhale alcohol. And so I have this book that I'm definitely including in the show notes called Drugs and Behavior, an Introduction to Behavioral Pharmacology. 
Um, I have an older, it's in like it's ninth or 10th or 11th edition. Mine's like the six. It's one of those books that there's like a new one every freaking semester so they can make more money off the updated effects. Um, but they say normally alcohol does not evaporate fast enough to be administered by inhalation. But in 2004, uh, a machine called AWOL Alcohol Without Liquid, which vaporizes liquor in oxygen, was marketed in the United States and Britain. And essentially, it's still out there. There were some states that were banning it or like consider banning it. And it was set up to where it basically mimics the effect of alcohol consumption through that by trying to balance it to about the same thing that you would have if you had a shot that would take about 20 minutes to hit your system. That was about how much they were allowing through that, but it was going through the lungs and they had no clue what the effects were going to be of having to go through the lungs yet. Weird. Um, yeah, super weird. Never seen it. Have you? No. If anyone's listening out there to try that, I'd love to just have an anecdotal, like, what was that like? Don't worry about, like, going out to try it just to answer that question. Oh, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've already done it, feel We're free to We're not responsible for anything that you do as a result of this. <laughs> I guess we should just say as a general PSA is drink responsibly if you're going to drink. And if you're not going to drink, then, hey, cool, more power to you. Um, yeah. All right. So I'll go real back real quickly to the, the GABA uh, and norepinephrine as those neurotransmitters. Now, one thing that research has pointed out is that those alone do not fully explain the behavioral effects of alcohol, why it affects people in certain ways and others in slightly different ways. Perhaps there are other areas of the brain that are affected that we just don't know about, or there are other ways in which those neurotransmitters are affected that we just don't know about, or there's some other process, or they just haven't factored in other things like the respondent conditioning and behavioral conditioning that may have taken place with respect to alcohol consumption that would yeah, also yeah. likely be contributing factors. Um, but just speaking at the level of the brain, it's it's there are things that we don't know about this still, and what we do know does not tell the whole story of what's going on. And, and maybe it never will. Maybe it will. It's unclear. So um, perhaps there is something to be learned by looking at the behavioral patterns associated with, associated with alcohol and the process by which behavior tends to take place. So let's dive into the behavioral effects. All right. So aside from the fact that there are obvious changes in behavior patterns when consuming alcohol, there is an extent to which the alcohol works through a history of learning. So we have stimuli that are associated with consuming alcohol that can uh, end up eliciting the effects of alcohol in a way to kind of supplement them. So this is an automatic and involuntary process is usually below the threshold for detection. So what some would call subconscious. Do you have an example of this? Yeah. So a series of studies over the last 20 years have looked at brains in an fMRI, which we talked about in episode like five or something. Um, and this is of people either receiving alcohol as an injection into their veins or a saline solution as injected into their veins and then performing certain cognitive tasks. And although the alcohol did produce the most pronounced change in performance and neurological responding, the uh, there was a change in the group that received just the saline solution, which should have had no effect whatsoever. And the uh, so essentially what happened is that the experimental equipment, which is the saline solution, um, produced that small re uh, reduction in brain activity in the same parts of the brain in the same regions as the alcohol, resulting in somewhat intoxicated-like behaviors. So this is basically a placebo effect. And I saw one article call this 
drunk on expectations, which I thought was kind of a clever <laughs> way of describing it. And what's happening is the stimuli associated with drinking, in this case they were associated with like needles, but um, but if you're normally consuming alcohol, it's going to come in like a can or a bottle, or you're going to be drinking it from like a wine glass or something. It's going to have a, a particular color and smell. You're going to be at a particular environment where this takes place, usually um, at like a bar or something like that. And this will quote-unquote subconsciously, trick your brain into going into drunk mode, which is to say that it is it is that whole drunk on expectations thing. All those cues that are associated with consuming alcohol start to elicit the body's reaction to as if there were alcohol there. That's sort of how it's working. Now, this is usually temporary, and it's really only mod, like modestly dangerous at best. Um, it is worth noting that it has not been shown to be effective for people recovering from alcohol addiction, which is to say that there was a, an attempt to use this placebo effect to see if they could be like, well, let's create the conditions of drinking without the alcohol and and then use this to try and get people to to stop consuming alcohol and it what happened was all those things were such powerful cues that the people were like eh, screw it I'm just going to drink and then um, jumped into it so it it was a lot more like the stuff we talked about in the willpower episode where it was like if they were able to resist for a certain period of time then they would and then they would give in and um and so this really didn't have the effect of having them not want to select alcohol it wasn't it was not effective to be shown there yeah i was going to note also we've seen this behavioral tolerance that can occur in like these effects in other drugs too right yeah um it's not solely specific to alcohol i guess is my point well and even i mean it's related to a lot of things even think about food and people talk about how and there's been research to show that when people sit down and eat while they're watching tv or something consume like 30 or 40 percent more calories than if they were to eat while not being distracted by something else like we we get in the habit of these certain patterns of behavior where those patterns start to have that sort of placebo effect of like when I'm in this situation, my body's ready to receive calories, like just like boom, go. Um, yeah. And that can be – and so we can over consume in those types of situations. Some other things that occur, there's a decrease in visual acuity and your peripheral vision. Uh, it can also decrease your taste and smell sensations, your pain sensitivity, slows your reaction time and your hand-eye coordination, and can create a bunch of things that people like to call euphoria or euphoric uh, visions or statements or feelings. <laughs> yeah. So a quick question to ask as part of this is why? Why do we consume this poison and put ourselves through the situation where we're literally tearing our bodies apart? Um, and I, I found a few different hypotheses. And I mean, I think the overall response that we would give to this is that there is a contextual situation in which the choice to drink is a valuable one in that situation, and so we do that, um, and that there is a certain um, rewarding outcome that comes along with this that makes it so that we want to do it again in the future, because like there might be something like a hangover, but that's going to happen so much later than the effects of feeling happy and excited and sociable and maybe having a, a warm, happy relationship with the person sitting next to you later. So all of those things are more immediate. The stuff that's unpleasant is so much further down the road that we're going to be responding to that this feels good right now type thing. And so that would be one 
quick answer to give. There was one hypothesis that was called the neurology hypothesis that suggested that the reason that we drink is that it frees up our neurons from being so busy all the time, and we end up spending more time in the here and now or being present and less time in our own head sort of thinking about things. And so it's sort of the suggestion here is the sort of a, a thought reprieve and it just sort of helps us feel better about things because we're not so concerned about this thing coming up or this bad thing that happened. It just sort of uh, pulls us out of that that running narrative we have of stuff to worry about and just has us be sort of in, in the moment. Thus, it can often temporarily elevate our mood. All right. Next one would be the cognitive hypothesis, and this is to escape the self through cognitive narrowing. So we either focus less on our own selves and have more unmediated connection to other people and become more socially engaged, or we disconnect more from reality and become more entirely focused on ourselves and what's going on for us and ignore the distractions of the outside world. That's, yeah, so that's another, all right. Uh, Let's get through all these before we comment. Yeah, uh, the anthropology hypothesis. uh, This uh, this one is that um, consuming alcohol allows us to break cultural taboos. When people are drinking, they will behave as if expected for a drunk person to behave inside of that culture. This was according to one source that I found. Uh, This tends to happen when drinking is regarded as a moral decision. And um, people then, so in cultures where people treat consuming alcohol as a moral choice and as the well actually as an immoral choice really if we're talking about it um they they drink they treat drinking as an issue of morality what tends to happen is that people will then use drinking to justify engaging behaviors that are not actually caused by drinking and so they'll surprise yeah um and however in cultures where people treat drinking as a morally neutral activity, that is, it's just not a moral issue, they tend to see that there are less fights and less inappropriate behaviors while drunk. So an interesting thing, I guess, to extract from this is just that the cultural, the culture uh, in in that context will affect how one behaves while intoxicated. All right, next one is the spirituality hypothesis, if you can even call it that, which is essentially to glimpse this sense of transcendence, to feel unity within the universe, to think bigger than ourselves. And I sounds like more mystical explanations of the universe sound and feel more reasonable. Yeah. I think the effect of alcohol, potentially people who are intoxicated are more likely to buy conspiracy theories and that sort of thing. And then finally, as I sort of mentioned up front, the behavioral hypothesis is that social or circumstantial settings create the context in which the effects of choosing to consume alcohol become valuable. And so when one chooses to engage in alcohol, then both the inherent and social consequences that uh, will reinforce that choice to consume alcohol later um, at another time. And then furthermore, the conditions under which alcohol is consumed becomes a cue to indicate that drinking will be a good choice in that situation because it produces those favorable outcomes. And we can, again, reasonably justify, quote unquote, in the the positive outcome in the moment, which will outweigh the potential negative outcome of the future. Okay, so that takes us into some interesting tidbits. I think these are just things that we've found that were interesting along the research process. So the first one is the dark liquor tends to result in more intense hangovers than white or clear liquors. Yeah, that was interesting. Alcohol use has a significant risk for dementia. There's also uh, an increased risk of cancer. There's problems to the reproduction system, problems with the liver that we talked about, the nervous system, as well as increased chances of heart disease. (laughs) In some places in the world um, in which there 
is declared a in which there's a declared drinking age. The lowest drinking age um, that I was able to found is about ten years old. Wow. Yeah, but there are places with an undeclared drinking age that they might allow even younger children to drink. Unclear. I've heard arguments that uh, some cultures try to lower the limit to try to teach them how to appropriately drink rather than making it this kind of taboo thing that you're doing on the side and not learning how to appropriately do. That There's evidence to suggest that that actually does work too. And then there are people who will put a little bit of like whiskey on the pacifier of babies to help them calm down and sleep. And yeah. Jesus. I don't know. That, I don't know how well recommended that is, but it's a thing that happens. No, there's behavioral ways to do that without having to get your baby drunk. So alcohol is the most commonly misused substance in the United States of America, which is super interesting since it's completely legal and we fight for other drugs to be uh, banned and such. It's highest amongst blue-eyed Americans of European descent. More men drink than women. The CDC claims that there are about 88,000 alcohol-related deaths per year in the United States, which is a lot of people. I would assume that a, not an insignificant chunk of that is from uh, vehicle-related deaths, though. And so we didn't talk about the withdrawal syndrome, which is perfect here. It is the only drug that the withdrawal effects can literally kill you. Like, the other ones are freaking horrible to go through, so I've been told. But it can it can kill you as a result of the withdrawal from it, um, which what you're experiencing in a hangover is those early stages of withdrawal. So those are specifically like tremors, agitation, vomiting uh, that you can get. But it starts to turn into like delirium tremens, uh, DT, as well as seizures and delirium and the really late major syndrome stages of that. Fun. Um, there's some. Art- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's <laughs> we. I'm going to go party with some dementia. Um, There is some archaeological evidence to suggest that Egyptian workers who built the pyramids of Giza were paid in beer, um, at least some of them. And this isn't 100%. It was just something that somebody found and suggested. It's a myth out there that lower content alcohol can't make you as drunk as hard alcohol. Um, They can all get you the same amount of drunk, though. You just need more of the lower content ones to reach the same level. And remember, it's this mix of your body's composition, the behavioral effects, how often you're using it, as well as that metabolic rate or how often uh, or how much your, your liver can produce per hour. Yep. It is a myth that it's healthy or at least not unhealthy to get drunk every once in a while. Um, drinking to the point of excess even once can cause lasting biological damage. Consuming Surprise. small amounts that don't lead to toxicity might not necessarily have these effects as long as your liver can filter it all out and doesn't become overloaded. But yeah, no amount of consuming alcohol to the point of being intoxicated is actually healthy. And it's a myth that coffee can help you sober up. Uh, what you might get if you had someone who is sensitive to caffeine is someone who's drunk and has a sudden burst of energy. And in fact, your heart doesn't know what to do when you're getting this uh, stimulant on top of this depressant uh, of alcohol and caffeine mix. So <laughs> just don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but, you know, it's it's just your delivery was good. All right. <laughs> Sorry. That's all good. I've been one to slam vodka Red Bulls. I feel great during the moment, but I know that I'm probably shaving off minutes or years or decades off my life sometimes when I do that. And I've since been able to get off of that uh, habit, I guess. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and wrap this up. This is a long one. All right, take-home points. Alcohol works by entering the bloodstream and messing up the neurotransmitters in your brain. Yes. We'll see you next episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it also tends to have uh, pretty serious long-term uh, effects on your on your biology, your health, and um, it can also reduce your brain mass. So it's important there. And we didn't even get into the potential treatments when we talk about alcoholism that could be reserved for maybe a follow-up at some point yeah. where we could talk about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, where we talk about anti-abuse, community reinforcement approaches, um, and relapse prevention. So at some point, I guess this is a commitment to jump into those. I think they're pretty cool and it'd be an informative episode to put out there. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about inside of addiction more generally. Alcoholism specifically could be its own episode or series of episodes. I mean, there's, there's just a lot to unpack inside of that. So, um, But as far as the reasons why we drink, most of it tend to surround the idea that we um, get some kind of, I guess, respite from life and that we get some kind of access to relaxation and feel good stuff. Um, and then going back to the behavioral hypothesis stating that essentially we make those choices when it seems contextually appropriate to do so. Um, They can become habits so that we make those choices based on the cues of drinking and not necessarily the contextual, uh, contextually appropriate situation. And that those, those pleasurable effects will, will reinforce that. And that the delayed outcomes are, they're too far removed to necessarily reduce the likelihood of that choice being made. And um, alcohol is pretty much pretty bad for you. (laughs) (laughs) Drugs are bad, okay? (laughs) Drugs are bad, okay? Um. (laughs) (laughs) All right, with that said, this is Rhino. This is Abraham. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.